This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today we're talking all things technology, the biggest trends shaping internet and software businesses around the globe, how tech companies are thinking about IPOs, about going public, whether the pace of innovation among startups can continue, and much, much more. Our guest is Kim Posnick, Global Head of Internet Investment Banking and Co-Head of Technology, Media, and Telecom Investment Banking Services at Goldman Sachs. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. Let's start with a simple question. Talk a little bit about the tech landscape at the end of 2018. 2018 was a fantastic year for technology. We were incredibly busy across IPOs, across M&A. It was the year of the mega IPO, and it was the year of the China IPO. So there were 13 IPOs greater than a billion dollars in 2018. We were lucky to lead 11 of those 13. Of those 13, six were out of China. So incredible amount of volume and velocity and very high profile and consequential companies. And I believe that will continue into 2019. So it's an incredibly robust tech IPO market. And it was also a fantastic year for tech M&A. And so we saw big strategic trades, IBM, Red Hat, Walmart, Flipkart, big strategic moves, and the markets were very receptive and open to those moves. Kim, you mentioned that a lot of the equity capital markets activity this year, a lot of the IPOs were actually in China. Mm -hmm. So how is that process, how is that ecosystem different from the one we see and are more familiar with in the United States and Silicon Valley? As I mentioned, 13 IPOs north of a billion dollars in 2018, six of them in China. Many of those companies you hadn't heard of two, three, four, five years ago. So, I mean, you've got companies that are going from zero to billions and billions of dollars in a matter of years, and the growth is like nothing you've seen. So in the U.S., we've seen a lot of sort of growthy companies go public. They're, you know, one or five billion dollar market cap companies. They're growing 20, 30, 40, 50 percent. These companies in China, they're growing from zero to 50 billion dollar companies, and they're growing their revenues and their profitability at sort of staggering rates. I mean, 100, 200, 500 percent plus growth. The degree of growth is like nothing we've seen before out of China. And is there obviously an investor appetite because this is a way to capitalize on the transition of China into a consumer economy? A hundred percent, but also there's investor appetite around the one and a half billion people in China and the one and a half billion people in India. And contrast that to the 300 million plus or minus in the U.S., it's just the market size is staggering on a relative basis. So it makes sense that these are businesses that will scale and you can make a lot of money if you bet on the right businesses. So you're the global head of internet investment banking here at Goldman. you got a lot of clients all around the world keeping you busy. Too often we focus not enough about mm -hmm. China and what's going on there. What's on your mind for the year ahead? Will we see the momentum continue in this industry? So yes, I think that we'll have a strong IPO and M&A market heading into 2019. I say that based on our pipeline. The startups right now are all using technology in different ways to drive growth, to drive expansion internationally if they're based in the U.S., to continue to innovate their products, whether it's a service, whether it's a consumer-facing product. And all of those companies right now have access to capital, whether it's public capital or private capital. And so they're not constrained for the most part, from that standpoint. And I think what they're thinking about most is this balance of priorities. There's so many opportunities. Think about the ride-sharing industry. There's autonomous, there's ride-sharing, there's food delivery. There's so many different ways to invest around that. There's artificial intelligence, there's machine learning, there's data science. And so I think the companies are trying to think 
about the highest bang for their buck, so to speak, in terms of investment and how to prioritize global expansion. You host a conference every year in Las Vegas to discuss some of these issues, the Private Innovative Company Conference, or PIC, as we call it around here. The most recent one was in November of 2018. What was the mood like amongst the participants there this year? It was our eighth conference, so we started in 2011. We've done this conference through ups and downs in the market, and this year it was actually very optimistic. There was a lot of talk around culture and how culture drives innovation, and it's a relatively intimate event of 500 people, and it's intentionally that way because our goal is that everyone that you run into is someone that you want to run into, whether you're a company, a founder, a CEO, an investor. And so it was great. I mean, the other thing that I would note this year is our keynotes coincidentally were mostly seasoned CEOs. Of public companies. A mix of public and private, but people who had been CEOs of public and private companies. So Meg Whitman was there, Dara Khosrowshahi was there, Anthony Noto, Tom Siebel. And they were optimistic, but the advice they gave to younger founders was just one of cautious optimism and talking about how strong this environment is today, but to just really think about long-term sustainable growth and think about that in the context of path to profitability and really building a business for the decades, not for the years. And how do those newer companies take advice from people who've been through the cycle? They were really open to it. I think many of the companies at the conference this year are ones that have lived through, let's call it the past five to 10 years. And as I said, there have been ups and downs and there have been different environments as it relates to access to capital. So I think they were very open-minded to it. Kim, after seven years of this PIC conference focused on private internet companies, you actually changed the name this year. It's now the Private Innovative Company Conference instead of the Private Internet Conference. What drove that change? Last year, we changed it to innovative because the truth is we're just focused on the most innovative technology companies out there, point one, whether it's internet or software doesn't matter. Point two is the lines and delineations between those sectors are blurring. Lime and Bird, are they internet companies? Are they software companies? Are they mobility companies? Are they auto hardware companies? It's unclear. And you have so much innovation around things like robotics and AI ride-sharing, food delivery, and all of these sectors have multiple inputs from internet, software. And so we just thought, let's remove those artificial delineations because they're not relevant. So a perennial question for bankers and for founders is the dynamic of staying private or going public and that critical decision. Obviously, it's been a good period for staying private. Funding's been there. But we've also seen some pretty big companies go public recently, and a lot of people anticipate that next year will be a big year. What's driving that decision now, and how are founders thinking about that? We still have access to capital, whether you're going public or private. So people have options that they didn't necessarily have 5, 10 plus years ago. The thing about the access to capital is that the sources of capital are getting even more diversified. So, you know, yes, there's SoftBank, but there's also private equity funds like Silver Lake and venture capital firms like Sequoia that are doing huge multi-billion dollar fundraises. There's more public to private crossover investors. There's more 
venture firms that are getting grown within sort of corporate entities. Think of like capital G within Google and Alphabet as an example. And not to mention the whole China ecosystem. And the China ecosystem and, you know, sources of capital from family offices and private wealth. There's a ton of capital. So many companies are choosing to take that capital if they can and stay private longer. I actually understand that thinking because if you're in a very high growth, high risk industry and you're constantly testing and learning to see what are the right decisions to make for your early stage business, wouldn't you rather do that not in the public eye? Mm -hmm. I think the answer is yes. You know, there's other businesses that want to go public because they want M&A currency. They want a liquidity event for their shareholders, their employees, and those are real reasons to go public. So just the capital isn't the only reason to go public nowadays. And many of them view the IPO also as sort of a marquee branding event that will help them in their respective businesses. So it's actually pretty balanced right now. So one of the transactions that caught a lot of people's attention this year was Spotify's direct listing, which was an untraditional non-IPO IPO. There's been a lot of talk amongst founders about wanting to disrupt the traditional process. What's your view on that? I think the IPO product is ripe for disruption. There's sort of a tried and true process that we've used for decades to take companies public. There's a bunch of guardrails around it that are put in place because of the SEC, and there's requirements that you have to abide by. But, you know, the bankers take the company to meet all the investors on a roadshow, and you sit face-to-face and have these conversations. There's real value to that. There's innovation in that product, which I think is great for the industry. So the direct listing, fantastic for Spotify. We will see more, but you may not see as many as you think because fundamentally you do a direct listing if you don't need the capital. And most of these private companies at this stage in their life cycle need capital. There's some critics that say the banks don't add that much to this process. And some of these unicorns already have a pretty robust private shareholder base. Do they really need bankers to introduce them to investors? They've already found investors. What is the role of banks going forward in a new IPO world? Because many companies are staying private longer, the challenges that those CEOs and boards face are actually much more complicated as private companies, and you need advice to navigate those challenges. So, for example, when you are a multi-billion dollar private company with cash on your balance sheet, you have the opportunity to buy companies, private to private, to sell yourself. You're approached by strategics all the time. You need help in terms of constructing your board. You have the option to go public or to stay private and raise private capital. How do you think through all those different investor classes that I just talked about? And so all of those decisions require advisory and conversations with a trusted advisor. So I actually think the role of the advisor is critically important for that private company, given all the choices that they have today that they didn't necessarily have 10 years ago. For years, the technology industry has sort of been mostly unregulated in a lot of ways, at least here in the United States. But there's been a lot of talk this year about increasing regulation in the sector, particularly for big technology. How do you think that plays out? And what are the implications for some of the clients you're talking to? I wish I knew the answer to that. (laughs) Listen, the large cap tech companies have grown. It's been amazing growth, amazing consumer adoption across countries, across regions, massive global impact because consumers just love those products and those services. That's undeniable. All of these companies grew up without regulation because it's almost like we didn't know they needed regulation because we didn't anticipate how big and impactful they would be. So now we are where we are. Historically, the tech companies have said, don't worry, we'll deal with it. But there's been some sort of very public hiccups around that. So I don't know what the right answer in terms of the degrees of regulation. I imagine, though, over the next three, five, seven, ten years, there will be some degrees of regulation just because of the massive scale and potential for impact that these companies have. 
regulation is sometimes easier for the big companies to deal with because they've got a lot of staff, a lot of people, a lot of lawyers. How do the founders that you're dealing with think about regulation? Even though it seems aimed at big tech, it could easily hit them. Are they ready for it? I think for the most part, the earlier stage founders are probably not ready for it. They haven't had to live through it. I find that the larger companies and those founders that have spent a lot of time thinking about it are forced to because of the size and scale and impact of their companies. And the earlier stage founders, they've got so much going on in terms of innovation and growth and disruption that if it's not forced to be top of mind, then it's not necessarily top of mind. So it's not a lack of interest in the topic. I just think that they've got so many other things that they're focused on in growing their businesses. So Kim, let's talk about diversity. Obviously a subject that's been in the news a lot over the last year with Me Too and the like. Getting a lot of attention, both in our own industry, in the financial industry, but also in the tech world particularly. Is the tech world changing its views with respect to diversity or reprioritizing that issue? And how are founders thinking about it? Absolutely, yes. It's been in the news. And I think founder CEOs are very focused on it, which is fantastic. That's a good thing. We have a long way to go. We've made progress, but we still have a long way to go. I I would note that the conversations I hear are more around culture than diversity. And And when I say that, I mean diversity is a subset of culture. So these founder CEOs want cultures that attract the best and the brightest to build whatever product or mission or vision that they're pursuing. And you have to have a fantastic culture to attract the best and the brightest. The best and the brightest, by definition, will be a diverse workforce. And so... The conversation on diversity are sort of in that context when I'm talking to the founder CEO who are sort of building these businesses. And like I said, I think everyone's focused on it. We've made some progress, but there's just a lot more opportunity ahead to truly diversify these workforces. And by the way, when you're thinking about the clients, the customers of these internet companies, they're all trying to be global businesses. So guess what? To understand your customers truly, you need to have a diverse workforce to understand a global customer base. The conversation around diversity has gone to the board level, too, partly because of legislation in California, which is putting quotas or levels on it. What are you hearing from clients about how they're thinking about diversifying their boards? It's one of the most common questions I get since this legislation. It's a very common topic, as it should be. And where we're helping clients most is sort of introduce them to networks of people that they didn't otherwise know. So the founder CEOs in Silicon Valley often have very similar social networks. And introducing people to incredibly qualified and seasoned and experienced women who could be phenomenal board members, but maybe are in a different industry or have a different function or, you know, spent years overseas or whatever the thing, but aren't necessarily directly in their social network or professional network is hugely important. It's a big part of our dialogue right now. Obviously, our own industry has challenges on diversity. You run a business within this business. How do you think about diversity amongst your own team? I think it is critically important. If you are going to have the best team that wins the most, you have to have a diverse team, period. I truly believe it in my bones. And so we have intentionally built an incredibly diverse internet team. Over 50% of our team is women. I'm very proud of it. But candidly, I just think it makes us better. And you think about all of the different companies we cover globally and the fact that all of those companies have their own set of customers and clients that are global customers and clients. And our ability to relate to those companies and their customers is that much stronger when we have a diverse team. I think it's mission critical to winning. So, yeah, you have to have it to win. If I'm not mistaken, you studied history and drama at college. You're a liberal arts major. How did you find your way to banking, and how did that prepare you for the job you do today? 
I did. I studied history. I also studied theater at Yale. And I got to tell you, I think that liberal arts is a huge advantage to investment banking because if you really think about the job of an investment banker, a huge part of it is storytelling. Whether you're taking a company public, you're storytelling, whether you're getting one company to buy another company or you're trying to sell a company, whatever it is, it's telling a story. It's telling the story of the company and trying to get investors or buyers or sellers to understand your story in the context of a financial and business story. And if you were trained in history or English or theater or whatever it is, I think that you have a mindset and orientation to storytelling that can be very powerful in investment banking. I studied liberal arts at Yale, as it happens as well. But when you're in those majors, you're not necessarily thinking about becoming a banker. So how did you end up as a banker after studying history and theater? Well, I was definitely not thinking about banking when I was in college. That I can assure you. But it's actually simple. My mother was in finance for years. My stepmother worked in FIC at Goldman Sachs and traded fixed income. And so I was surrounded by women in finance my whole life. Good role models. They were good role models. And they said, you should try this out. I think you'll enjoy it. And here you are. And here I am, telling stories. Awesome. (laughs) This is the last question, and it's a simple one, but maybe not so simple. What tech gadget or what tech innovation are you most excited about for next year? I'm only going to say this because I was thinking about it last night. I'm really into productivity apps right now. (laughs) Probably not the answer you were expecting. (laughs) Well, as a working mother, as a working father, uh, I appreciate that. My favorite new feature of the iPhone, I don't know if it's an app, is screen time, which the first time you click on is pretty scary to see how much time you spend on your smartphone. And when Tim Cook is talking about having to put down his smartphone, maybe it's time for me to (laughs) spend a little less time with it. Well, Kim, thanks so much for joining me here today. Of course. Thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on December 6th, 2018. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.